People across the nation have been thinking about the small Georgia town named Plains in recent weeks. It's been a while since that's happened, uh, like nearly 50 years. And that's when a peanut farmer from Plains named Jim Carter ran for president and won. Last month, 98-year-old President Carter began, to, began the end of his life in hospice care. It's not completely known how he's doing this week or today, but his niece is quoted in the news this week saying, quote, he's still got some time in him. James Earl Carter was a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, a U.S. senator, and a one-time governor of the state of Georgia. In 1976, he narrowly defeated Republican Gerald Ford to become 39th president of the United States. The Elman Brothers Band performed at his inaugural dance. On his second day as president, Carter pardoned all Vietnam War draft evaders. During his one and only term, among other things, he established the U.S. Department of Energy, as well as the Department of Education. The list goes on. But he also oversaw the Panama Canal Treaties and helped construct the strategic arms limitation talks. The end of his term was, was marked um, in, 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 in a not a very positive way by the realities of the Iran hostage crisis and an acute energy crisis. Even with those remarkable events aforementioned, uh, and that tiny list just scratches the surface, Jimmy Carter may be known more for his life after the presidency, a, a life devoted to actions suggested to him by his faith. He started the Carter Center to promote and expand human rights, which earned him a Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, he drove a forklift and wielded a hammer on countless Habitat for Humanity construction sites. A president as a person can reflect in a, um, a snapshot way who we are as people in America. Our first guest spends her academic career researching and pondering how these things add up to what can be called national identity. Allison Prash is an assistant professor in the UW-Madison Department of Communication Arts. Good morning, Professor Prash, and, and thank you for joining us on the Friday Buzz. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I purposely wrote a long-winded introduction to, to this <laughs> segment on purpose. I was intentional about that because I, I wanted to try to set the table for what kind of a person Jimmy Carter is. Let's you and I consider him as, as a president, but also as a person. But when you think of him as president, what comes to your mind? Well, I really appreciate that introduction because, as you know, a president is always a person, but they also represent the institution of the presidency. And so I think as an American public, we look at them as both an individual who takes specific actions as an individual, but they also represent this institution of government. And so I think, you know, over the last several decades, when we think about Carter's life and legacy while he was in office as president, as you noted, there's a number of um, accomplishments and achievements, but those often get overshadowed by thinking about the Iran hostage crisis, for example, or the energy crisis, or even probably his most well-known speech, the Malay speech, in which mm. he decided to speak directly to the American people and say, this energy crisis is difficult, but you also bear a, a certain portion of responsibility. And so when I think about him as a president and some of the things that we might characterize who he represented, I think one thing that's so remarkable about Carter is he was willing to speak truth to the public in a way that is pretty remarkable and often at his own political peril. And I think you see his desire to be honest, to communicate truthfully, being forthright, and to also call the nation 
to be better and sometimes use really direct and explicit language to do so in a way that, quite honestly, the public wasn't ready for or came to resent. Ironically, his appeal is his connection to people. But of course, humans don't like to hear what they don't want to hear. So both of those things are going on in the (laughs) dynamic that you just described. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, perhaps we're able to better appreciate this about Carter in hindsight. Because, for example, if you look at how people respond to some of his direct challenges to them towards the end of his presidency, um, you see, you know, people turn from Carter, for example, to to Reagan, a candidate who was able to offer a very optimistic, sunny vision of the nation and, you know, saying America's best days are in front of her in a way that didn't require the same amount of personal responsibility or introspection that Carter required, which is kind of ironic, mm. thinking about um, Reagan as, as a Republican and you know, themes of individualism that we often associated with, <laughs> with Reagan Republicanism. But, but Carter was quite direct in saying, no, if we want to confront these moral, ethical crises, a spiritual crisis, he would say, it requires this introspection. Um, now we can appreciate it, but at the moment, I think it was it was really difficult for the public to appreciate what he was doing. It's almost impossible to separate the person from the president. I'm 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 thinking as as we try to unpack this a little bit. And even though Carter had an impressive political resume by the time he ran against Ford, as I mentioned, U.S. Senator, Georgia Governor, he he captured voters' minds by being the humble peanut farmer from Plains. He didn't have to act that part. That's who he was. Americans love this. It gets back into relating to the people we elect. Uh, We like to relate to people in power, but but it doesn't happen very often with presidents the way it did with Carter, does it? No, I think I think you're absolutely correct. And I think you know that a good parallel I think to Carter would also be Truman, Harry Truman, and thinking about you know how he presented him as just an ordinary everyday person, someone who actually really didn't want to be president, and through (laughs) you know happenstance of history. Was, was thrown into that role in ways where he would say in his autobiography, for example, you know, I didn't want this job, but here I am, and what am I going to do, essentially? Um, I think it's also why um, you see, you know, beyond Carter, thinking about, you know, conversations about um, George W. Bush, for example, could you go have a beer with him? Or criticisms mm-hmm. of Obama, who would say he seems too professorial, for example. Or even thinking about um, our more recent presidents, you know, Trump, people being attracted to him because they believed that he was mm-hmm. an outsider and spoke directly and refused to engage in some of the the po- political language that sometimes people um, come to resent. Or Biden, how he often will say, you know, I'm just going to tell it to you this way, folks. You know, there's that, that recurring theme. And so I think um, those are, are mannerisms or stylistic choices. But with Carter, as you know, his entire person was this very down-to-earth, humble, direct, honest candidate and president, and he really governed through that persona in a way that we haven't seen for a very long time. You, you, you read my mind on, and it's unavoidable on the on the Trump comparison. So let's go there. Mm-hmm. Carter was successful in having Americans relate to him via positive values that he lived that he demonstrated. Trump was successful in getting Americans to relate to him for blatant negative values, racism, sexism, narcissism. How does this show the power of the need for a personal, for a personal connection to a president? That's a great question. Uh, and it is one, quite frankly, that political scientists and communication scholars are still trying to work out and tease out. And I think we will be for a long time. What I can say is that 
just as we seek to look to the person of the president as a representation of us, so those positive values, as you noted with Carter, it is also true <laughs> that um, explicit or not, there is a tendency to also identify with the more baser elements of human nature in an individual. I wouldn't make the argument, for example, that every single person um, voting for Trump, for example, was saying, I want to vote for these particular um, uh, characteristics, as you noted, you know, racism, sexism, etc. But individuals did need to make a choice to prioritize other values that were important to them, whether it was ideological values, such as, you know, their stance on immigration or tax reform or, you know, a variety of things, the Supreme Court, for example, and privilege those values over um, issues of racism or sexism, right? So I do think um, Rod Hart is a political scientist at the University of Texas at Austin, and he talks about that we need to understand the election of Donald Trump not as an anomaly, but actually as a reflection of ourselves. And what does it tell us, for example, that the public is attracted to and feeds into the political spectacle that Trump creates and profits from? And it's not just Trump, right? Other politicians do this as well. But I think it really does demand some self-introspection to figure out what is it that we are willing to privilege as a public that is most important to us in mm. these electoral contests um, when we choose these issues over uh, more fundamental moral issues of character. And, and I think that is the crux of the issue as we think about who we elect to lead and represent us. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with UW-Madison Assistant Professor Allison Prash, whose scholarship includes the U.S. presidency and national identity. Professor Prash, as you no religion and faith have always been a political playing card in politics. And it was always mm -hmm. clear that Carter always tried to live his faith. Uh, people paid attention to that. And, and he stepped in it a few times by talking about his Christianity. But, but since that time, the religious conservative movement has, has created a brand of, of what faith means mm -hmm. politically and, and what it doesn't mean. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a notion that led to something activist Michael Moore recently wrote in a column on Jimmy Carter, a column last week. I want to get your reaction uh, to a, a piece of it, just a line here. Um, Michael Moore wrote, and, and he's writing in this column directly to uh, President Carter, quote, the right despises you because you're the Christian they fake claim to be themselves. You've lived like a true Christian, humble, kind, forgiving, and always making sure your actions matched your words. Professor Prash, how, how does the perception, the practice, and the exploitation of religion as it defines who we are as Americans and, and who we want for president shape what we'd call a national identity? That's a great question. You know, I think it's a two answers. First of all, in reaction to that, that quote from Michael Moore, you know, I think the, the underlying assumption there is obviously our conversations currently about Christian nationalism and how particularly um, politicians um, on the right have really co-opted and have weaponized um, Christianity as a justification for a number of policy proposals. But not only that, recognizing how identifying as evangelicals most prominently um, can get you votes on particular issues. 
And so I think what Moore is really reflecting there is how Carter's faith, I would describe, at least as he lived it out in public, obviously, um, was quiet, unassuming, and yet provided a very clear foundation for how he chose to lead and govern. Um, in fact, you know, you could say, I, I noted earlier how Carter was really willing to, to speak uncomfortable truths to the public. I mean, that is a tenet of Christianity in being willing to, to you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Um, whereas, if you look more broadly thinking about Christian nationalism now and this weaponization of it, it is an obfuscation of the truth, right? Uh, a hiding, <laughs> a, a masking of saying, I will use religion, I will use Christianity to cover up what I am doing so that it appears more palatable. And so I think Moore's um, observation is very correct. And I think um, it points us, again, you're talking about national identity. How do individuals see their faith and how do they connect it to their life? Hmm. Is it the basis for how they choose to live their lives, their actions, etc.? Or do they use it as a cornerstone, cornerstone um through which they will attempt to, to hide and to um, deflect attention to the choices they choose to make. Is it just an accessory, right? And I think we would say that for Carter, his faith was not just an accessory. It was who he was. And I think, unfortunately, we see a lot of politicians today using their faith as an accessory when it is profitable to them um, in, a, in a way that, that I find deeply problematic. I, I keep coming back to your point about how he could not find it in himself to lie. Um, mm. based on his faith. And didn't he have that uncomfortable moment when he said he committed adultery in his mind? <laughs> now, yes. who would say yes. that? You know, who, yes. especially if you're president, who would say that even now? Uh, oh, no one. Yes. Absolutely, no one. And it was almost as if, I mean, in that moment, I'm not going to assume intention, right? But but it was this personal pledge he had taken to himself, <laughs> right? There is no reason that you have to admit that to anyone, and yet he, right. that was... You know, what was motivating him? Absolutely. A president's acting on policy in personal ways, whether faith informs it or not. Uh, are, are, th th those act make a, a, an impact if people connect it to some personal uh, values. It, it can also show big contrast between presidents, too. And I'm thinking right now of a kind of obvious example of this. But as you may know, Carter installed solar panels on the roof of the White House. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. was in 1976. Uh, they must have been like 12 story high. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But the next occupant of the White House, Ronald Reagan, um, made a big deal out of about tearing them down. These these are both political acts of show, though, are they not? Mm -hmm. Oh, they absolutely are. No, they absolutely are. And, you know, I think, um, you know, Carter's decision to, to install those solar panels and to emphasize, you know, the significance of his concern over the environment. And then Reagan, you know, very explicitly saying, I'm going to take these out and they're really, you know, not replace Obama uh, eventually will will kind of bring those back to the White House. Um, but I think, you know, to your point on the the, new, the solar panels, you know, I think it's really interesting if we think about president's life and legacy. Um, a great place to look, I always look, is how presidents characterize themselves in their farewell addresses. And if you look at Carter's farewell address, he delivers it six days before Reagan takes office so on January 14th, um, 1981. And it's really fascinating because Carter 
described himself. He said, I want to step outside the office of the president and I want to speak as a fellow citizen of the world. And I think that's really significant um, because Carter was establishing himself in relationship to the rest of the world. And that reflects, you know, his commitment to human rights. But he talks about three concerns as he's leaving office. It's nuclear destruction. It's the stewardship of the planet or talking about climate change before we knew it as such. And then also talking about the significance of human rights. And I think as we assess Carter's life and legacy, we can look back at those three themes that he talked about and raise those concerns. Those continue to be concerns that we should have today. And those themes also have animated what presidents have done after Carter, both Republican and Democrat. And Carter really had the foresight, um, the vision to make those core national issues really before his time. Allison Presh is an assistant professor in the UW-Madison Department of Communication Arts. Professor Presh, you, you mentioned Carter, a um, uh, self-appointed citizen of the world. Any given president is not just a reflection of domestic national identity. It's also, if you go abroad, the makings of an American national identity is perceived by people in other countries, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for Carter, um, a a key aspect of his foreign policy legacy is his decision to put human rights at the center. And that was remarkable for his time. And in fact, we think often, you know, about Reagan and his rhetoric that's anti-communist and talks about the rights of various individuals living under Soviet rule. Carter really predates that in saying we need to consider the rights of ordinary citizens um, in relationship to our foreign policy. Um, in, in a way that really sets up what Reagan can do in terms of Reagan's foreign policy. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to try to accomplish two things. One is probably frivolous. I try to leave myself out of all interviews I do. Um, people mm-hmm. who know me well know how difficult that is. But I, I can't resist telling you I met Billy Carter. And this gets back mm-hmm. to, um, uh, you know, the down-to-earth people uh, that the Carter family was. And uh, of all things, mm-hmm. this was in Louisville, Kentucky, between summers of my college uh, semesters. And do you remember Billy Beer? Yes. <laughs> yeah. A Louisville brewery started that, and uh, all of the taverns and the brewery had a contest. Whoever sold the most Billy beer during a three-month summer period would have Billy Carter be the guest bartender for a night. And the place no that we hung out at, Gerstel's in St. Matthews, Kentucky, won. And uh, I it, it went the night that Bill, so I not only met Billy Carter, Billy served me um, more than a couple Billy beers, um, and we talked. And as a mark of, of his sort of undistinguished celebrity, Gerstel's was no more or less packed that night than any other night. There were about four, 20 people in there and Billy Carter pouring beer. So I, I had to get that off my chest, but it does get back to, you know, this this was a family that you could touch, um, warts and all, right? Um, and so in the, after, in the minute that we have left, I do want to bring it back to uh, former President Carter. What does his life tell us about the American experience? You know, I think as we look at Carter, in many ways we see an individual who really believed and chose to enact the idea of public service throughout his lifetime. Um, you, he, he'll talk about, you know, growing up, living on a farm without running water or elect, electricity, his decision, you know, to serve his country in the military, um, public service at multiple levels of government. And when he entered office, 
as president, it's important to remember that the nation was reeling from Watergate, Vietnam, um, all-time lows of distrust in the government, and Carter made it his personal mission to try and restore that trust in the government and the institution of the presidency. And I think as we look at him and how we assess his presidential legacy, we see an individual who did his very best, right? That's that's the title of a new um, book several years old about Jimmy Carter, but also what his own mantra was that he pledged to himself that he would do his very best in every particular situation. And I think that we are the beneficiaries of that vision and how Carter's decisions as president decades ago still continue to shape how we think about the presidency. And I would argue is is an example that presidents um, going forward should emulate. In his final days, it just feels so good to, to, to talk um, in, in these ways about 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 he and his life. P- Professor Allison Presh, thank you so much for joining us on the Friday Bus. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We did too. Thank you. Allison Presh is a presidential scholar and assistant professor in the communication arts department at UW-Madison.